Trodcast, 2.4 times larger than any other podcast, with Adam Averson, George Bendo, Jeff Gupta, Libby Jones, Ian McDonald, Mark Perver, Joel Radiman, and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, December 2011 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Christina Smith and joining me in the studio today are Jen, Mark and Joel. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. And I'm especially excited about this one because it's Christina's first time doing the lead presenting. Yep, I'm very excited. (laughs) We've kind of thrown Christina in at the deep end a little bit. She's doing lead presenting. She's helping to produce the show. We've basically realised that I'm leaving soon and... Libby, as much as we love her, is very disorganised. So, Christina, sorry that you've got all this stuff to do in the lead up to Christmas, but ha. It's all right. I quite enjoy doing the podcast, so it's all good. She's getting used to it. <laughs> in the show this time, we find out about the son from Edward Contar, and Dr. Ian MacDonald answers your questions. But first, before all of that, George and Adam talk to Matt Griffin about the Herschel mission. George and I are here with Professor Matt Griffin, who's been in George Bank's Centre for Astrophysics today, speaking about the future of far infrared extragalactic astronomy from Herschel and beyond. Over to you, George, because you have an extensive list of questions. <laughs> now, I've uh, worked with Matt for a few years on the uh, Herschel Space Observatory. Just going to uh, start with asking Matt, first of all, give a brief description of what the Herschel Space Observatory is. Well, Herschel, uh, as you say, is a space observatory, and that means it's designed to operate above the Earth's atmosphere, and it's uh, very difficult and expensive launching anything into space. So one only uh, tries to, to do that when one has to. So Herschel is observing in a range of wavelengths roughly a few hundred times longer than the wavelength of visible light, and most of the radiation that we're looking for can't be seen from the ground because it's absorbed by the Earth's atmosphere. So if we want to observe it, we have to go into space. And it's important to observe it because when we look at uh, out at the universe at these wavelengths, we see a different side of it to what we see if we look with an optical telescope. Most of what you can see with an optical telescope is emission by stars or planets in, in our own neighborhood. And that That's very interesting. It tells us a great deal about the universe, but all of the objects we see are essentially grown up. If we want to see how stars form, either in our own galaxy or in distant galaxies, then we have a problem with optical radiation because it's not emitted by these objects, and even uh, if it is, it gets absorbed by big, thick clouds of gas and dust that surround the regions where stars are forming. So Herschel's scientific theme is to look at the birth processes of stars, and that's why we have to do that from space, because we can't observe at the relevant wavelengths from the ground. Now, what's your personal involvement been with the Herschel Space Observatory? And uh, when when did you first get uh, involved with the Herschel Space Observatory? Well, I started working on Herschel in the form of participating in various study groups in the early 1990s. The observatory was first conceived probably early to mid-1980s. And as with most large astronomical observatories, it takes a long time to get from conceiving the idea to actually executing it in flying the telescope, in this case, several decades. So when I started, various studies of different concepts for the mission were being proposed and evaluated, and it went through various evolutions, a bit like a Hollywood script. You know, the the film that actually gets made in the end bears little resemblance to the first version of the script that people thought up. It's very similar with uh, space observatories. So we worked uh, on various studies, evaluating the concepts, trying to make it better 
trying to fit in with, within the, the budget and the technical constraints. And that took a long time. And eventually it became a, a fully-fledged project when we sorted out the design and we knew we could do it. We started the design, detailed design and building process in 1998. And then it essentially took another decade to build and test the observatory before the launch, which was in May 2009. So now you're the lead scientist for the Spire instrument. Did you start working on the Spire instrument in 1998? Yes. In fact, I'd started working on the Spire concept quite a bit before that. In parallel with studying the spacecraft, we had to study what was called a model payload. That was a set of possible instruments that would do the necessary scientific job. And it became clear that uh, what we needed were three instruments, all very complex and sophisticated. And it was clear that each one of them would have to be built by uh, an international team. And so to be ready, we knew it would take 10 years to build the instrument and to test it. To be ready, uh, to start in 1998, we actually started assembling the team and working on some preliminary designs and so on in the mid-1990s, probably about 1995. So we were ready to hit the ground running, as it were, with building the instrument straight away. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Spire instrument is uh, specifically and what makes it so special? Well, uh, well, Spire is designed to do the kind of observations that most astronomical instruments do. And uh, those observations mainly fall into two different kinds. One is taking pictures. So Spire has a camera and uh, it takes pictures in three different colors. And those colors can be combined together to produce a false color image. Those colors are analogous to the colors of visible light. So if you have a camera, it can take pictures in three different colors simultaneously and they can be combined to produce a composite color image of whatever you're looking at. And we want to do that at Herschel wavelengths just as well as we want to do it in the visible from from other telescopes. So that's the one kind of observation. And from that, you can tell a great deal. You can tell what's there. You can tell what kind of structure it has. From the information in the three colors, you can learn about things like the temperature and the density of what you're looking at. So we can start to do physics on what we see. The other kind of observation is called spectroscopy, and that's where the light is broken up into its constituent wavelengths and studied in detail. And that's very useful because different atoms and molecules have their own special signatures. There are certain wavelengths of light where they like to emit or absorb radiation. So if one sees that happening, then it's an immediate indication of what's there. And by studying in detail the the spectral features emitted by atoms and molecules, you can learn about things like their their composition, the temperature of the gas, the density of the gas, whether it's moving towards you or away from you. You can start to learn all kinds of detailed physical properties of the region you're looking at. So those are the two basic kinds of observations that astronomers can do. They like to take pictures to see what's there, and then they like to home in on certain spectral features in order to learn about the physics of whatever source they're looking at. Aspire does that in a way that's basically the same as an instrument working at optical wavelengths on a ground-based telescope. Okay. So I spent a little bit of time preparing for this interview, looking on the ESA website for the original science goals of the Herschel Space Observatory. This is kind of entertaining, in my opinion, just because sometimes scientists say they're going to go do something, and then they actually end up doing something else, or they discover what they want to try to do, they couldn't originally do. So I just wanted to run through these uh, really quickly and see if uh, you can tell me whether or not Herschel Space Observatory has actually achieved these goals or if it did better or if it did worse. And then after this, I'm going to ask where the things that nobody thought about before the launch of Herschel, which turned out to be really 
interesting once Herschel began working. So, the first of the original goals, the website said that Herschel would detect a mission from the earliest galaxies to form in the universe. Have we been seeing that with Herschel? That's probably a, a little bit of an exaggeration, but I think Herschel's done quite well in that respect. When galaxies form, a large number of stars are forming at the same time. And as I said before, when stars are forming, this occurs inside very large clouds of gas and dust that are opaque at visible wavelengths, but Herschel can penetrate the gas and dust and see inside. So Herschel's very useful for looking at galaxy formation, where we like to try and catch the galaxies in the act of, of forming most of their stars. And also with Herschel, because of its sensitivity, we can see very distant objects. And so Herschel has managed to, to do more or less what was predicted. We can see the star formation occurring in galaxies way back into the early history of the universe when it was only maybe 10% of its current age. I don't think the story is, is complete there yet. What Herschel has done in its first two years of operation is to do lots of survey observations whereby large areas of sky have been systematically mapped, uh, producing a huge volume of data. And so far, only a small amount of that has been studied in detail. But already, we're beginning to see some objects which are at great distances, and we're beginning to start to study them in depth. So I think Herschel has more or less achieved that ambition, although there are probably younger objects that are even further away that we have not actually detected and that we won't. So whether it was the very earliest objects is uh, probably not literally true, but I think in spirit we've managed to take that one. Another thing that was stated was that Herschel would find cold gas clouds that would be the gas clouds that would eventually collapse to form stars. Yes, indeed. That's one of the main goals of Herschel, and that one has been, I think, achieved and has been achieved in a very spectacular way. In our own galaxy, stars are forming today, and uh, stars like the Sun are forming, and one of the objectives of Herschel was to investigate that process and learn more about it, both in order to understand it in general and also to get a better picture of how the Sun and its planetary system were created four and a half billion years ago. So the same thing's going on today. And Herschel's sensitivity, and in particular its ability to map large areas of sky, has proven to be very useful in that respect, because these clouds are, um, are, are very large, and they're, they're quite diffuse, and it's very difficult to map the emission unless one has a very stable observatory, and that's what Herschel has provided. And it's shown us the structure of what uh, we call the interstellar medium. That's the material between the stars, the gas and the dust, out of which new stars might be forming or might form in the future. We can now see that material with Herschel in great detail, and uh, we're, we're beginning to understand its structure and how the star formation process begins and how it proceeds and how the final stars emerge. So I think Herschel has made a huge advance in that respect. Another stated goal was that Herschel would find more dust disks around other stars. Have we seen that with Herschel? Indeed we have. Dust disks around stars were a major scientific theme of a previous observatory called Spitzer. And Spitzer detected these dust disks. Herschel has followed that up and has managed to make improved measurements because Herschel has a bigger telescope than Spitzer. So it has a higher magnification. It produces more detailed images. And so one of the most important galactic projects for Herschel has been to look in detail at these disks. And we can see them uh, much more clearly with Herschel, particularly with a PAX instrument. The Spire instrument is working at longer wavelengths. At shorter wavelengths, we get better images. And the PAX instrument has 
has taken some fantastic pictures of these discs and it's also able to see them in quite large numbers so that we can start to investigate their statistical properties as well as homing in on individual ones and looking at them in detail. So that's going to be another uh, sort of major success story of Herschel. I think along these lines, uh, even though I'm asking questions as though I don't know anything, I've been particularly impressed with the images of the Vega debris <clears throat> disk that Bruce Sibthorpe has produced in his research. Yes, and that's something that came more or less straight out of the box in one of the earliest scientific observations of Herschel. When we were building Herschel, we knew it was very complicated, and we would have been quite pleased if two-thirds of it had worked, because that's the nature of a space observatory you're always pushing the technology and you can't fix anything if it goes wrong and the launch is a is a bit of a an ordeal for the system and we expected a few things to break a few things not to work properly but in effect practically everything works perfectly and we were able to do these fantastic science observations in the very first months of of operation uh, another state goal was examining the chemistry of comets and other things within the solar system Yes, again, Herschel has very wide-ranging capabilities. Its primary science goals were star formation in our own galaxy and in distant galaxies. But its suite of instruments is such that astronomers who are interested in all kinds of other things can also use it, including people who are interested in the solar system. We can learn a great deal about uh, objects in the solar system by sending probes, uh, landers and orbiters and so on, and uh, we're all familiar with that. But we can also learn a great deal by remote sensing, and Herschel has remote sensing capabilities capabilities because it's operating in a poorly explored wavelength range that can tell us new things about the atmospheres of the planets and about comets. For instance, when we look at a comet with Herschel, we can use the cameras to look at the dust shroud that surrounds the nucleus, and we can use the spectrometers to study the gas cloud that surrounds the nucleus, which has been boiled off by the intense light of the sun. And as a comet approaches the sun and recedes, then the rate at which gas boils off increases and then decreases again. And we can follow that with Herschel, and the spectrometers can allow us to determine what's there, how fast it's boiling off the nucleus, uh, what composition it has. And that's very interesting because it's thought that, for instance, the water that's now on the Earth might have arisen from uh, a phase in the early evolution of the planet when it was bombarded by comets. And so if we look at the composition of water in comets and compare it to the composition of water on Earth, we can test that theory. And then related goal of the Herschel Space Observatory was that it would detect exotic molecules in space. Has Herschel uh, achieved this? It has. It's detected a few molecules that were previously unknown. I wouldn't describe that as one of its major achievements. Exotic molecules tend to be ones that contain many atoms, and such molecules don't necessarily show themselves most prominently in the Herschel wavelength range. Nevertheless, it's seen a, f a few that haven't been seen before. And also in Herschel spectra, there are lots of unidentified spectral features. Many of these, I think, over the years will be pinned down as you know, additional spectral features of molecules that we already know are there, and perhaps some of them will be new ones. Now... This is just a list of things that people thought that Herschel would do before Herschel was launched. Is there anything that I haven't mentioned which you think is particularly spectacular, which Herschel has done, which nobody anticipated that Herschel could do before launch? Perhaps if we'd thought a bit more carefully, we would have been able to predict this. But we didn't think it was going to be very good for doing spectroscopy, studying the spectral features of gas for very distant galaxies because we thought that the signal would be too faint. 
so we weren't really expecting much in that respect. However, there's a phenomenon that occurs in astronomy that can uh, give us a bit of a boost, and that's where a gravitational lens makes the signal stronger. What this requires is that we look at an object, and right between us and the object, on exactly the same line of sight, there is a large galaxy. And that large galaxy acts as a sort of a magnification lens by bending the light from the source in the background around it and giving us a magnified image. And these uh, instances are not very common. You have to have the two galaxies in very precisely the exact same line of sight. But with Herschel, we studied large areas of sky and we've managed to identify a few cases where this occurs. And then if we point our spectrometer we can measure the spectrum from the distant galaxy because, in effect, we have an additional telescope between Herschel and it. And that's allowed us to probe much more deeply into the universe, into the early universe, and use our spectrometers on objects we thought we'd never be able to see. That was a very pleasant surprise. Another pleasant surprise to some people, although those of us working on the instrument and on the observatory knew that it would happen if we got things right, was the image quality produced by the Herschel cameras that allows us to see the turbulent and complex nature of the material in our own galaxy in a way that was never really appreciated beforehand. The images that we see are as good as we expected, and I think some people who weren't uh, so familiar with the work that we'd been doing on the instrument were pleasantly surprised by that too. Interesting. Now, in the last broadcast, you mentioned that you would hope that a lot of people in the future would use... Herschel data, even long after Herschel stopped operating, to continue to do science with the data. So it's not just people working with the science now, but people working with the data for a much longer period of time. Is this something that you've uh, been seeing other people do? This is the most important aspect of the project from my perspective. All the efforts that we made over many years to build the instrument had the sole purpose of getting the data. And now that we have the data, people are actively working on it at the moment, getting their publications out, getting new results, and that's great. But uh, the amount and quality of data we have are such that it will take a very long time. It'll take decades to do justice to it. So the real scientific benefit and legacy of Herschel will only be real if we manage to make the data available to future astronomers in a form that's easy to use. So, for instance, I can imagine 10 years from now or 15 years from now, a research astronomer might want to use some Herschel data. They won't want to learn about how the instruments worked. They might not even care that there were two cameras instead of one. They just want to get the data from those cameras and use it to do their science or to combine it with observations made by other telescopes. And we're working very hard at the moment to try and make sure that that's uh, what we do. We will put all the data in an archive which will be easy to use, easy to access, easy to understand. And if we do that properly, then the benefit of Herschel would extend over decades rather than just uh, its own operational lifetime. The programs that Herschel has undertaken have all been carefully planned with that in mind. The whole idea was that you know, the first half of the mission would be dominated by these big surveys to produce huge data sets, and the people involved in the survey observations would get their payoff by you know being able to do some quick science, but then the data would be put into the public domain, accessible to everybody to use for many years into the future. And I think that's going to work quite well. It'll still take a little bit of care and attention to detail to make sure that the archive of the data is as, uh, as good as it needs to be. 
Do you think people uh, listening to this podcast, amateur astronomers or general space enthusiasts uh, who may not have a PhD in astronomy, could go to those archives and download the data themselves? That's an interesting question. The archives will contain usable maps. So, uh, again, if we do the job right, one of the archive products will be an image, and there, there should be nothing in principle to stop an amateur astronomer from downloading such an image directly. In addition to that, many of the images taken by Herschel are going to be made available by ESA and already are being made available by ESA on a special repository which they have set up, which might be a little bit more digestible for the casual observer. So, talked about what Herschel has done. Now, Herschel was launched in April of 2009? That's right. No, May 2009. May 2009. And when will Herschel cease to operate? And then what will happen once it ceases to operate? Well, the Herschel instruments all have to be cooled to very low temperature to work at all, all three of them. And that's achieved by having a big tank of liquid helium on board, which achieves very low temperatures. But the helium slowly boils off into space, and it will all be gone. It will run out, we expect, in the spring of 2013. So four years or slightly less after the launch. And unfortunately, when the helium runs out, None of the Herschel instruments will function at all, and the mission will end. What happens to the Herschel spacecraft after that hasn't been decided yet. Like all spacecraft these days, it will have to be parked or put into some known orbit where the chances of it ever crashing into the Earth in an uncontrolled way are zero. So what happens to it depends on ESA. Uh, what we want to happen to it is that it be crashed into the moon, because that would be quite a spectacular way to sign off, as it were. Whether or not ESA are willing to do that, uh, we'll have to wait and see. And then after you crash Herschel into the moon, what will come next for people who are interested in infrared astronomy? Well, infrared astronomy is only in its infancy. We've been studying the visible light from stars for centuries with the naked eye and with increasingly powerful telescopes. And we know a great deal about the side of the story of the universe that visible light has to tell us. But infrared astronomy is a very young subject, and Herschel is really only a pioneering mission to get us started in trying to understand the obscured universe that we can't see in the visible and it will need to be followed up. We can already see from the data that we need to follow it up with a more powerful observatory. And the next one, and hopefully a sequence, will be called SPICA, the Space Infrared Telescope for Cosmology and Astrophysics, which is a mission being planned by Japan. It will have substantial international participation, so Europe will make a contribution to it too. And that's a mission which will have a telescope about the same size as the Herschel telescope, but with a big advantage, and that advantage is that the speaker telescope will be very cold. The Herschel telescope has a temperature about 80 degrees Kelvin, 80 degrees above absolute zero which is very cold, but not as cold as we would have liked. A speaker telescope will have a temperature only a few degrees above absolute zero. Now, that doesn't seem like a huge difference, but actually it does make an enormous difference to the sensitivity. And with speaker, we'll be able to do the same things that we can currently do with Herschel, but on objects which are far more distant, and we'll be able to do it on a lot more of them. So the next generation observatory following Herschel will be essentially something similar but several hundred times more sensitive, and that will allow us to extend our knowledge of the universe uh, to much earlier times. Great. Oh, well, thank you for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for that, Adam and George. Next up, we have an interview that Libby and I recorded with Edward Contar. Joining us today on the Jodcast is Dr. Edward Contar from the University of Glasgow. Hello. Thanks for coming to speak to us today. Thank you for having me here. You gave a talk about solar flares. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, I spoke about the solar flare energetic particles. Okay. So, first of all, what's a solar flare made up of? Observationally, solar flare is a sudden release of energy in the atmosphere of the sun, our star. And normally, these events lead to appearance of large number of energetic particles, which is the subject of my research and the subject of the talk. How do these form initially? What, what creates them? What causes them to suddenly appear from the sun? Uh, although we don't have a detailed understanding how the flare is happening, we believe that the bulk, the energy of the flare, is coming from the magnetic field, and the magnetic field created within our sun. This magnetic field is through a number of processes, presumably some sort of a uh, reconnection, turns into the energy of the energetic particles. By reconnection, do you mean the lines of the fields are crossing? Uh, yes, that is a simplified view. So magnetic field lines of opposite polarity change its configuration in such a way that they take the minimum energy state and the excess energy goes to the energetic particles. What sort of particles are you looking at specifically? Are they photons? Are they electrons? Uh, these are mostly protons and electrons. Electrons are much more easier to observe, so it's very often that we speak about the electron. The chief reason for it is just simply electrons are much less massive, and so it's much easier to accelerate them rather than protons. And of course we've got all sorts of other particles uh, from different chemical elements, so highly ionized iron, oxygen, lots of helium, and so on. So pretty much typical chemical composition. Do these particles get accelerated at the time the flare forms? Does it happen somewhere later on down the line? Is it instantaneous acceleration? Do we know that? The answer to this question is not that easy, yeah. uh, because we have some observational constraints, and we want to believe that what we observe is indeed corresponds to physical scales. On the basis of the observations we've got, uh, we believe that the acceleration of these particles happens relatively fast, so probably within a fraction of a second, uh, which is much shorter than uh, average duration of a flare, which is around half an hour, an hour. Is it still disputed how these get accelerated? There are very many models mm -hmm. uh, suggested in the literature, and different models have some advantages and some disadvantages. So unfortunately, we don't have a definitive answer, but at the same time, it's what makes the solar flare physics research so interesting. Still lots of avenues to be pursued and exactly. lots of research to be done on that. How do you actually observe the flares? Do you have to use space telescope? Uh, nowadays, we use both uh, ground-based and uh, space-based telescopes. Lots of uh, solar flare emission is in high frequencies, so the frequencies of uh, photons above visible light. These photons are normally absorbed by our Earth's atmosphere, so in order to make any ultraviolet or X-ray observations, we need to go to space. Because of that, all these observations are from satellites. Uh, on the other hand, radio observations can be still performed from the Earth's surface, so combining these two, often we get the best view of solar flare phenomena. Okay, so you use lots of different frequencies to observe as many as we can. Does each 
type of observation have benefits? Um, are there preferred methods? Each uh, type of observations has some strengths and weaknesses. For example, radio emission in the range of frequencies above a few gigahertz, so it's like microwave and above, it's normally strongly dependent on the intensity of the magnetic field. At the same time, X-ray emissions or photons of X-ray range, they are strongly dependent on the density of the surrounding media where they are produced. So every time we use different frequencies or different energy bands, uh, we weight our signal by some probably not very well-defined value. So in case of X-rays, we will be more sensitive towards one regions of the flaring atmosphere and in the case of radio waves to another and they might be not necessarily the same. So you see different parts in different um, frequencies. I have a couple of basic questions about solar flares. Do the rate of them change with the solar cycle, like sunspots, so over the 11-year cycle? That's very true. We have flares much more often and much more powerful during the periods of solar activity. For example, we are on the rise of the solar maximum, and during the solar minimum, uh, solar flares are normally small, and infrequent. And do the solar flares originate from the sunspots or do they come from a different region of the sun? Indeed, they are closely associated with the sunspots. Sunspots are the areas uh, where the magnetic field has very high concentrations and because the energy of the flares is coming from the energy of the magnetic field, uh, indeed the most energetic flares do happen in the vicinity of the sunspots. And how much energy does a solar flare typically emit? Uh, It emits uh, a lot of amount of energy, so it's roughly 10 to the 25 joules, which might be recalculated into something more comparable as, I think, 10 to the 10 uh, megatons of TNT equivalent. Wow, (laughs) that's a lot of energy. When you're actually looking at the sun, so some of our listeners may well have looked at the sun through like a solar telescope, and you see loops on the side. Are all the flares loop-based, or are some of them sort of straight prominences, or is that just depending on the configuration that you would be looking at them from if you looked through a solar telescope at the edge of the Uh, sun? Yes, indeed. If you look uh, at the sun with the ultraviolet telescope, uh, you will see the structures which... Uh, resemble loops very well. But unfortunately, if you look at the sun in visible uh, range frequencies, you don't see such features. Uh, What you only see is the surface or photosphere. So the solar flares originate higher up in the atmosphere? Yes, I believe so, yeah. But uh, as the flare develops, it involves pretty much all layers of the solar atmosphere, from photosphere all the way into the heliosphere truly global phenomena. When you're doing observations, do you have to at any point block out the main part of the sun so you can see the solar atmosphere or can you just observe the sun straight off using the telescopes? These telescopes which uh, obscure the sun disk are called coronographs and they're quite often uh, used to observe the faint uh, solar atmosphere. This is uh, an artificial solar eclipse, basically. So uh, if you want to see rather faint solar atmosphere, you do want to cover up the bright disk of the sun. Do the particles in the solar flares 
always have the same composition or can different types of energetic flares have different compositions of particles? It's a, a difficult uh, question. It depends on what uh, composition uh, we mean here. If we refer to the chemical composition or it is a balance between the electrons and ions. Uh, with respect to the electron and ions, it seems like uh, sometimes uh, the flares produce uh, much more energetic electrons than on average. So we almost don't see any signatures of energetic ions. We call such events electron-rich events. Sometimes uh, we can see clear signatures that ions were also accelerated. As to the question about the chemical compositions or what particularly chemical elements are being accelerated, it's not uh, that clear because we do not have a very good capability to uh, definitively answer this question. Do we know any reason why the electron-proton range might happen at all? Is there placements? Is it formation or occurrence? Uh, we believe it is a feature uh, related to the underlying acceleration mechanisms. And indeed, some acceleration mechanisms predict equal acceleration of electrons and, uh, for example, protons, and some uh, favor acceleration of energetic electrons. So, indeed, uh, in most cases, it is underlying physics and the assumptions we made about the acceleration process. Can you briefly describe some of these acceleration methods? Yeah, uh, well, the most easy one would be acceleration using some uh, applied electric field. So, we do know from uh, secondary school that if you have electric field, the electrons will start to move and gain energy. And uh, we believe that such situations are probably uh, created during the solar flare. Of course, it's hard to imagine that it's a constant field. Situations become uh, really messy. So there is many ways how we can view this alternating field. And every time when we have this alternating electric field, there should be some alternating magnetic field, which will complicate the things even further. So the uh, second uh, quite popular way to look at the flare is some sort of a Fermi or stochastic process when there are multiple interactions with this uh, surrounding electric and magnetic fields that cause particles to gain energy to higher and higher values, to be more and more energetic. So the Sun being our closest star, we can understand and delve into it with a lot more knowledge. Earlier on you are talking about the different layers of the Sun. Can you please describe what these different layers are and what different processes happen in them? Yeah, uh, the sun, as we see in visible light, is called basically photosphere. The immediate layer above we call chromosphere. It is actually the layer you can sometimes see during the total solar eclipses. So this flush or sometimes reddish tint uh, color at the moment when the moon covers the solar disk is coming from this chromosphere and hence the name chroma from Greek color. And the higher level above the chromosphere is the solar corona, which is hot and we still do not fully understand why it is so. Uh, the temperature of the solar corona is around 2 million degrees, which is much higher than the surface or photospheric temperature of the sun, which is around only 6,000 degrees. How do the solar flares differ from coronal mass ejections that the sun produces? Uh, it's a very good question. Over the uh, last four decades, there were three different opinions. So, first opinion was the 
that the coronal mass injections is basically a minor part of the flare. In the 90s, there was a dominant opinion that uh, it's the coronal mass injections which play the most geoeffective role, so are the most influential with respect to the Earth. And now we believe that they have probably quite deep underlying physical mechanism. So we should view both uh, flares and CMEs uh, as interrelated processes. And do they occur at the same time? Interestingly, often yes, but there are exceptions. So you'll see flares without coronal mass ejections and sometimes a coronal mass ejection without flares. Yes, indeed, yes. For the majority of the events, we always see a flare and a CME. And it's specifically true for very large flares that normally cause large CMEs. But uh, there are occasions when we have a flare, a very powerful flare without a CME, and sometimes there is a CME without a clear flare counterpart. We know coronal mass ejections can correlate with the aurora being seen on the Earth. Do the flares also cause the aurora? Do they kind of reach far enough out for that to occur? You can say that the consequences of the flare are affecting the Earth. And often, for example, the polar oval can be uh, enhanced substantially by the radiation from a solar flare directly. So the flash of a flare uh, leads to appearance of more ionized material in our atmosphere. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the Jobcast. We hope to speak to you again soon. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Christina and Libby. And that brings us to the part of the show where we talk about everything that we can't fit in anywhere else. So the odds and ends. And Joel, I believe you have something. Sure. I'm going to talk about SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Um, And not so long ago, they built a big array of dishes to listen to billions of channels which ETs might try and communicate through. Um, It was originally funded by a donation from uh, Mr. Allen of Microsoft fame, but they uh, ran out of money um, not so long ago, and it was shut down and put into safety mode in April. But they managed to get some funding from the US Air Force. Um, Their highest priority uh, is um, Kepler targets. So this week, they're going to be looking at... uh, the 8.67 gigahertz band. I wonder if they'll find anything. So this is quite interesting. They also um, got public donations to try and start up the Allen Telescope Array again. And I'm pretty sure that Jodie Foster of Contact fame made a donation. I'm sure I heard that. <laughs> well, otherwise, where else is she going to sit outside in a Jeep with her headphones on, <laughs> listening to the aliens? We should probably clarify this, shouldn't we? It's not so much listening. We've been beaming television and radio for the last, what, 50, 100 years, and those signals are leaking out into space. And I think what the Allen Telescope Array is doing is trying to find those signals if there were aliens on other planets. Coming to us. Coming to us, yes. And I particularly like what the Air Force said they were using the array for. Oh, yeah, that was their, um, what was it? Their space situational awareness, apparently. Space situational <laughs> awareness. I think we all astronomers like to be aware of the situation in space. It sounds good. And tying into Kepler again, Kepler's the mission in space that's looking for planets using the transit method, which means it's looking for planets as they move across their host star and block out a little bit of the starlight. And this week, the Kepler team announced an Earth-like planet called Kepler-22b, which has caused quite a lot of excitement. Nah. 
And Jen's making noise, but we're going to ignore that for a minute. <laughs> Kepler-22b is quite close in astronomical terms, lying about 600 light years away. And it's about 2.4 times the radius of the Earth. So it is quite small. And more excitingly, it's in a place called the habitable zone, which means it's the right distance from its star to have liquid water on it. And its average temperature has been estimated at about 22 degrees Celsius, which sounds quite pleasant, actually. I'd take 22 degrees Celsius right now. So this is sounding like a potential, as it's been dubbed, Earth 2.0, which for some reason Jen has a problem with. Well, there's another aspect to it that I think you missed out, is that I'm pretty sure its host star is actually quite similar to the sun, which is again a new thing for this. But I don't really like all of this Earth 2.0 that's been banded around in the media. And I was going to actually write a blog post and everything about it. But then I found that a guy called Matt Burley, who is a researcher at Leicester, has already done this for me. So what he said is that, yes, its radius is 2.4 times bigger than ours. But if you assume the same density as Earth, then it has a mass around 13 times that of Earth. Lots more space. (laughs) So, but... For comparison, um, Uranus has a mass that's 14.5 times that of the Earth. So if if you're talking, it's a bit confusing because then Uranus is a gas planet, but we're assuming the same density as Earth, which would probably mean that it would be rocky. But we don't know whether it's a rocky planet or a gas planet. I don't like this 22 degrees business because how can they be that accurate about a temperature on it, given that Your temperature depends on whether you're in direct sunlight or where you are on the planet. Um, They may have omitted an error bar. Yes. I mean, it is interesting, but we've talked about Earth-like planets so many times on the Jogcast, and I just get a bit worried that we're actually going to find a planet that is like Earth, that is rocky and in the habitable zone, and we could go live there. It's got the right gravity, it's got an atmosphere, everything, and people are just going to be so bored of us saying... There's another Earth-like planet that they won't actually care, and that would make me sad. In its defence, the surface gravity strength goes as the radius of a planet, so it would be about 2.4 times the surface gravity of Earth. So it wouldn't be crushing. But as you say, we don't really know what it's made of, which is why a really interesting thing that will be done on it shortly will be spectroscopy to see what actual chemicals there are in the atmosphere. So if it has a lot of carbon, oxygen, methane, that would be quite exciting, because that could suggest life. Until then, maybe we are getting a bit too excited. But <laughs> because Jen's pouring cold water on it, I'm going to say there's definitely little green men with eyes on stalks. And you heard it here first. <laughs> and I'm going to say that Mark Perver's views are not representative of the Jogcast or the Georgia <laughs> Bank Centre for Astrophysics. Or indeed me. <laughs> and we'll move on. And not really tying in at all to anything that's previously been said. Um, <laughs> But it does tie into the previous show, so this is all fine. Um, There are some scientists at the University of California, um, Berkeley specifically, and they've reported that um, two nearby galaxies, NGC 3842 and NGC 4889... Those are some of my favourite galaxies. Really? No, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But these two galaxies have the biggest black holes ever been found um, and these are actually nearby galaxies rather than quasars or anything like that and 3842 has been found to have a mass of 9.7 billion times the mass of the sun 9.7 billion yeah not million billion that is wow. enormous that's huge 
and 4889 is thought to have a comparable mass black hole in the centre of it as well. The black holes that they found um, are significantly bigger than they would have expected from just extrapolating the observations from their host stars. So it's all very exciting. Um, although I'm not entirely sure how they've actually found the mass of these black holes, but hopefully this is something that Megan will talk about in the news next month. Hint, hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> now here is a man brighter than 9.7 billion astronomers. Here is Dr. Ian MacDonald answering your questions. Hello, we've got a few questions this week. The underlying theme for the answers is there's a simple answer, but there's a whole other complicated answer that goes along with it. The first question comes from Solar Crescent on the forum, who asks... What is the boiling temperature of water in space? Now, most people know that as you go up through the Earth's atmosphere, the temperature at which water boils drops. It's why you can never make a good cup of tea up a mountain, why the Swiss invented pressurised coffee machines. The boiling point of water depends on the atmospheric pressure. At about 60,000 feet up, the boiling point of water is low enough that it's below your body temperature. If you stepped outside a balloon at 60,000 feet, the fluid in your body would boil. The only person ever known to have experienced this and lived said that before he passed out, he felt the spit boil in his tongue. If you keep going up, there reaches a point where the boiling point of water becomes so low it's the same as the freezing point of water. We call this triple point, and it's about 90,000 feet above the Earth's surface. Above this height, unpressurized water can't be liquid, so it can never boil. What it can do, though, is sublime like carbon dioxide or dry ice does. It turns directly from ice into a gas. But if you keep going up, you eventually reach outer space, which is what we want to talk about in the first place. Now, there's no real edge to outer space, but it's usually taken to be about 100 kilometres up. The pressure here is about a millionth of what it is at sea level, and water sublimes to about 170k, or minus 100 degrees C. And if you take a bowl of ice up to the middle of space and heat it up, it will be about this temperature, 170 Kelvin, or minus 100 degrees centigrade, that steam starts coming off it. That's why comets appear not to have tails when they're a long way from the sun, um, because they're too far away from the sun for water to blame the ice on them. So that's a simple answer. The complicated answer is that it depends what you heat it up with, and how long you give it. If you stick an ice cube in space, the UV radiation from stars can knock off individual atoms or molecules, and the ice cube will eventually vaporise. But this might take a few million years. So you'll find astronomers, instead of talking about boiling points or even sublimation points, talk about radiation temperatures, equilibrium temperatures, hard radiation, soft radiation, all because things get a lot more complicated when you're working in the vacuum on timescales that make ice ages look like a passing fashion. For most purposes you're likely to think of, though, water will sublime to about minus 100 degrees Celsius in space. Our second question comes from Vasily Galkin in Russia, who asks via email, What is the dividing line, if there is any, between star clusters and galaxies? How do you distinguish, say, a very large star cluster from a very small galaxy? Well, привет, Vasily. I picked your question because most of the work I do actually looks at big star clusters and small galaxies, if not the dividing line between the two. And your question also illustrates how our understanding of the universe is continually evolving. The simple answer is, there isn't a division between star clusters and galaxies to speak of. But to understand why we call some groups of stars galaxies and some clusters, we need to go back through the mists of time to when these objects were first discovered. Early astronomers like Charles Messier and William Herschel, when they were putting together the lists of things in the night sky that didn't look like dots, grouped similar-looking objects together. When they saw groups of stars, they called them clusters. When they just saw a fuzzy blob, they called them nebula. And so everything ended up being either a cluster or a nebula. Now, many years later, we found out that some of these nebulae 
were also made up of stars. It's just that they were very far away, and there were so many stars that the early astronomers couldn't make them out in their small telescopes. It wasn't until Edwin Hubble came along and actually worked out how far away these things are that we realised what a galaxy actually was, and that our Milky Way was only one galaxy among many. So then we had stars, which came in clusters, and galaxies. In the last hundred years or so, we've had a better chance to look around these clusters and galaxies. Clusters are relatively small, from a few stars to a few million stars, and that is still small, They're usually fairly compact, usually fairly spherical, and they're usually part of a bigger galaxy. Typically, the stars form from the same clouds, they all have the same age and composition. Galaxies, on the other hand, tend to be big, massive, sprawling, isolated metropolises, with billions or even trillions of stars. They usually have some shape, be it a spiral, or an ellipsoid, or even just some amorphous irregular blob. Many still have lots of dust in them, and these continually form stars, so galaxies normally have stars of very different ages and very different compositions. But the closer we look, the more objects we find that have some features of both clusters and galaxies. There are small galaxies that orbit inside bigger galaxies, like Magellanic clouds. There are big clusters that have stars of different ages and compositions, like Omega Centauri. So in the last few years, the dividing line between clusters and galaxies has started to blur. The whole business is a bit like asking what separates a planet from a lump of rock. In the past, it was easy. We had big planets, we had small lumps of rock. But then we found a lot of objects that looked a bit like planets, but still quite like lumps of rock. And we had to ask, what makes a planet? So we ended up coming up with a set of criteria that led us to demote Pluto from planethood. And a bit like planets and rocks, there's no physical dividing line between clusters and galaxies. We have to ask, what makes a galaxy? And if anyone has been watching the BBC QI programme recently, they'll know that the answer is, nobody knows. Like we did with planets, we still have to come up with a precise definition of what exactly is a cluster, and what exactly is a galaxy. Until then, we'll never be able to separate the two. Our third question today comes from Richard Elvin, who asks via email, Will New Horizons ever overtake the Voyager probes in terms of distance from the Sun? And if so, when? OK, well, to answer this question, let's start by seeing where each spacecraft is now. Voyager 1 is currently 119 AU away from the Sun, that's 119 times further away than Earth, and is moving away at about 10.5 miles a second. Voyager 2 is currently 97 AU away from the Sun, and moving at 9.3 miles a second. New Horizons, meanwhile, is en route to Pluto and has just passed the orbit of Uranus, so it's 22 AU out, and keeping pace with Voyager 2 at 9.3 miles a second. So Voyager 1 is way ahead and it's increasing its lead, so this really is a one-horse race. Voyager 1 will always be the furthest of the three. Simple answer. Done. But what about the other two? Voyager 2 and New Horizons are moving away at similar speeds, but taking very different courses. Voyager 2 is flying merrily through space to fairly constant rate, having left the worst of the Sun's gravity behind. New Horizons, meanwhile, is slowing down due to the Sun's gravity, but still has an encounter with Pluto to come. Quite what happens when New Horizons passes Pluto hasn't been decided yet. It may speed up or slow down as it visits other Kuiper Belt objects but it's unlikely to ever reattain the speed that Voyager 2 has now, so it's unlikely to overtake it. I'm afraid New Horizons will always be that little bit left behind. Our final question comes from Jeff, who asks via email, Why is light bent as it passes close to the sun? A pint is resting on your answer. Well, the simple answer is that the light is bent because the mass of the sun curves the space around it. 
complicated answer is Einstein's theory of general relativity prescribes that the curvature of space-time by a massive body, alongside associated effects including the Shapiro delay, frame diagonal and stirring precession, and gravitational redshifting, pushes the photon's path from a straight vector in Euclidean space to a curved vector, but this is merely a three-dimensional projection of the shortest path in four-dimensional space-time. The very simple answer is that your friend owes you a pint. Thanks for that, Ian. And uh, now on to the feedback. Um, we sadly have not had any posts this time. Mm. So please send us some Christmas cards or post of some kind. The address is on the website so you can... It yeah. makes us really happy. And Libby does a little dance when we get posts. It's very exciting. So, yeah, we all very much enjoy getting posts, especially for Libby's post dance. I think we enjoy <laughs> it too much, actually. We should probably tone it down a little bit. We had quite a flood of posts in the last few episodes. And also, on the forum, we've had quite a lot of posts there, um, from Bernard65, Susan K, MC John, Bill Kep2, and Joda the Oak. Joda the Oak says, My son loved the panto so much I had to play it a few times, and we also really enjoyed recording it. So. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. On the email, we've had an email from Eric de Jonker, and thank you so much for sending in the pronunciation of your surname. He lives in Elko in Nevada in the USA and says he's downloaded the latest 50 Jogcasts and listens to them in random order over and over. And he says, you're doing a wonderful job and listening to you on a daily basis sparks my imagination constantly. And I really like that email because he says that he loves my yays. <laughs> and he listens to Jogcasts whilst looking through his telescope, which I think is a great idea. And I had a look at Elko on Wikipedia and it's only got 20,000 people and it's really isolated. So it must have a fantastic looking night sky. So... If you get a chance to send us any of your pictures on Flickr, that would be great. On Twitter, thank you for all the Follow Fridays and the retweets as ever. And thank you to Bill Keck, who said the December edition was hilarious. I I hope you were talking about the panto and not just the entire episode. <laughs> so just sitting there laughing at us. <laughs> yeah. Hilarity in astrophysics, he says, not something you hear often. So thank you for that. It makes the the, the pain of those falsetto voices more worthwhile. <laughs> Don't forget you can like us on Facebook, so please add us now. And if you want to send us any feedback about the shows, you can get in touch with us on the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget the post. You can get the address on the website and please send us some post. And that brings us to the end of the show. All that's left to say is thanks to Matt Griffin and Edward Contar for the interviews. The editors were Jen Gupta, George Bendo, Mark Perver and Dan Thornton. The producer was a strange combination of Jen Gupta, Libby Jones and Christina Smith. I like that. We've kind of amalgamated three of us into one. Good grief. <laughs> Until next year, Merry Christmas and Jod on. Bye everyone. Happy Christmas, Merry everybody. Christmas.